welcome back to the Forsters Modern Law Podcast. I'm Miri Stickland, a knowledge development lawyer in the commercial real estate team, and I'm joined today by members of our cross-departmental strategic land group. So we have Chris Findlay and Henry Cecil, who are both partners in our rural property team. Ben Brayford, who's a partner from our commercial real estate team, and Vicky DeCruz, who's head of our planning team. Hello to you all. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Hello. So, Chris, can we start off with you by just asking the question, what do we actually mean when we're talking about strategic land? Uh, strategic land is basically land that is um, identified for the opportunity of new development, usually as a major extension of an existing urban settlement or um, nowadays of a brand new residential based development on a greenfield site and um, with it come the requirements for allocation in a local plan by the local authority, master planning to work out how much land you need to accommodate the given number of uh, residential units uh, that you're aiming to build and then uh, land assembly to find out who owns all the land and whether they're prepared to participate and then it's a question of probably a promotion company these days rather than an individual house builder taking on the task of the planning and development with infrastructure that you're going to need for the long-term sustainability of the development and that's things like schools local retail units um, areas of open space and anything else to make make the development into uh, a nice place to go and live basically. So generally you would say it's going to be for a minimum of sort of five to 750 units going up to anything up to about perhaps 15,000 units in perhaps increments of 5,000 houses at a time. So that takes quite a time to build out and quite a long term therefore to plan. Thanks, Chris. So uh, can I bring in, in everyone else now and ask what sort of schemes you've seen brought forward and what have been some of their particular challenges? Ben? So one of the tricky bits um, can be selling off land in phases. If you're the master developer and you've managed to get your outline permission, how you structure that is something that you need to think carefully about. If you dispose of a site by way of multiple plots, then section 103 six triggers and liabilities may not be wholly ascribed on a plot by plot basis. So if a plot can't be built out without certain off plot works having been carried out, then the master developer needs to have a look at how that's going to be achieved, whether it's going to carry out some of those works itself, or if it's expecting another developer of one of the specific phases to do so, how it manages to structure step in rights, cure rights, etc., into the contractual arrangements to make sure that it can't stymie the rest of the development. Another thing to think about, I think, from that master developer point of view is that they're very much invested in the success of the early phases of the development because the value of future plots is likely to some extent at least to depend on you know, how those early phases um, progress and how successful they are. And a final thing to think about from that perspective is the legacy and control aspects. Um, on one deal, we were advising a local authority. So as well as being concerned in terms of how they disposed of those phases to the developers, they were very much invested in ensuring that the land was actually developed. So 
that leads to all sorts of considerations such as the payment and incentive structure, whilst in this case also having to be conscious of procurement issues as well. Yes, and I, I think just uh, following up on there from, from Ben, I agree entirely with everything he said. I think the legacy point is a very important point and, and um, is a particularly relevant factor for a number of uh, larger estates um, who will be very concerned about the quality of the build and, and the quality of the development that's happening on their doorstep for, for a lot of them. So they'll want to have a keen input into the design and build of the, of, of the development and the properties uh, and have their, their input. The main example of a, of a legacy development would be Poundbury in Dorset, which is a flagship development carried out by the Duchy of Cornwall. I'm sure everyone's familiar with it. I don't know whether people have been there. The design, the architecture there is key uh, and uh, it's really been a, a focal point for, for the community. I think from the planning perspective there, as you say, the, the landowner will have their key priority for what they want to achieve out of the strategic land. But as with most things, high quality architecture and planning can cost a lot. And that means there's probably less development funds available then for priorities that maybe are greater for the local community and the local planning authority. So from a planning perspective, as you're working up the outline planning application, it's really important to understand all those different priorities because it's all very well the landowner focusing on high quality architecture but if actually the local authority says to be honest we'd much rather it was a you know not poor quality but medium sort of level of architecture but actually as a result they had more money in the pot to generate um to pay for more affordable housing or deliver a school earlier in the um development that's what the local authority might need in order to get planning permission granted so having those discussions really early on and understanding where everyone's sort of pressure points are is really important to be able to sort of secure planning permission but also achieve everyone try and achieve as many people's aims as possible. Thanks Vicky so we've actually sort of started to touch on this um, but who are the key parties in a strategic land development and what are some of their specific drivers and concerns going to be? Chris did you want to lead us off on that one? Yeah well perhaps the most obvious but frequently forgotten party are the planning authority and also pol local politics followed by the landowners whose um, cooperation is of course essential and then the sort of driving force will probably be a land promotion company of whom there are very many both large and small operating um, in this sphere who will have identified this as a the land as a potential um, strategic land development and have worked out how many houses they might want to put on it. And I mentioned politics particularly because I was involved for about five years in a scheme to build a brand new town at the time when new towns were being promoted by Gordon Brown. I'll tell you how long ago that was. It was when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, and they had this wonderful scheme for a 15,000 um, house new development on the junction of the M40 motorway and the A34 Oxford to Bicester main road next to a railway line and they said well we can provide all the money to sort out the road junction we can provide the money to dual the railway line between Oxford and Bletchley which is halfway between the Oxford Cambridge link uh, and all this could be paid for by us having this amazingly big development. The trouble is the local authority didn't buy it. They wanted to go and develop um, uh, the local town. And so try as it might, and it spent a million pounds trying, the promoter got nowhere. 
and also they ran into a lot of local opposition from uh, from the nearby village that didn't fancy being swallowed up into a sort of mega town next door so i think those are the, the those are the sort of main main players in all this you've got to get um uh, you've also got to get the um likely objectors as on board as you can too thanks chris so I suppose by way of extension to that, how do you go about unlocking the value in strategic land? I think, as Chris mentioned, one of the first things to do is to ensure you've got your allocation in the local plan. So that can take a number of years, depending on where you are in the local plan cycle. But it could take anything up to 10, 15 years of slow promotion throughout the local plan, um, as Chris has alluded to, getting the politicians on board to um, try and push your site forward so it's it is does get the allocation that's before you've even started working up your planning application but without that initial site allocation you're really going to have an uphill battle to get any form of development on your site so that's your first point to unlock development and then as I say it's, it's securing your planning application um, and as Ben had said it's when you come to looking at your application always having in your back of your mind your disposal strategy so you could try and structure in a way the sort of phases and how you break all the obligations and the mitigation down to try and have things as phase specific as possible to enable you to easily and relatively straightforwardly bundle up each parcel to pass on to a housing developer. And that's your sort of aim. So try and have in your mind where you're going to end up and what everyone wants out of the end of this. So you can then inform and structure your application, your 106 accordingly. As Vicky says, you know, having having your aims at the top of your mind, I think, is key. From a landowner's point of view, maximising financial returns is, is an obvious one, but you also need to look at what's the level of risk you're willing to take, the length of time you're willing to sterilise the site for in order to achieve those goals. And, you know, as we've mentioned before, some landowners are going to be concerned about ensuring the development goes ahead or retaining some form of control over it. And that may require you to give up some of those you know, financial wins that you could otherwise have achieved. So it's being clear on where you need to get to, I think. Another point that arises is the question of infrastructure. And quite often sites will uh, bring themselves forward because there's an opportunity to do something like provide a new site for a hospital where the existing hospital is right in the middle of the city the roads all round it are chock a block, the buildings are getting old, and um, there's an opportunity to offer a brand new out of town site, or it may be schools, or it may be uh, an extension to a university. And there are all those things that take into account, but as many of those as pop up, of course, there's a huge cost to them. And so you can, for, for example, find that the new road junction offer off an A road into a new development site might cost 15 to 20 million pounds and that's all got to be paid for uh, in stages and you can get funding from Homes England via the local authority to do that kind of work but uh, there is a danger that in their zeal to get a get a quick planning application the promoters will sort of sign large blank checks for enormous amounts of infrastructure cost. Hey, thanks all. So Ben, if I can come back to you, what are some of the common types of contractual arrangements that you see and how does parties' appetite for risk impact on which of those structures is going to be the most appropriate? Sure. So there are a number of different ways to structure these sort of transactions and 
much of that's going to depend on the nature of the site, the intention of the parties and, you know, how that deal is going to look. But to give you a flavour, you could have a conditional purchase contract. So that could be conditional on planning or vacant possession being common ones. Generally speaking, that will commit the buyer to purchasing the site subject to those conditionality elements. The price may well be fixed, but there are ways of achieving flexibility depending on what, what level of planning is achieved. A second possibility would be an option arrangement. Here, the purchaser puts down potentially a little bit of money by way of an option fee in order to give itself an exclusive right to acquire the site down the line. Now that allows the purchaser to go in for planning and generally get its ducks in a row while still being able to pull out if things don't go as planned or the market changes to make the scheme unviable. From a landowner's point of view, it can potentially give them a small immediate return with the possibility of sharing in a larger upside. But on the flip side, there's no certainty that sale is going to go ahead. So it may end up sterilizing the land for a period of time with you know, no meaningful return. A third type of arrangement, uh, I suppose that would be a promotion agreement. They tend to be a bit more collaborative in nature. So typically you'd have the promoter looking to secure planning on behalf of the landowner. It would bear all the costs uh, in terms of obtaining planning, uh, but on the basis that it gets a slice of the value when the site's sold with the benefit of planning. So it's low risk for the landowner in the sense that it doesn't have to put anything in to achieve that. But again, it means sterilizing the site and you know, there's no guarantee that planning is going to come forward. The promoter will often have you know, a fair bit of flexibility in terms of what it's looking to achieve. So those option promote agreements we talked about, they're quite often used where uh, you're, you're trying to pull together a site often from a number of different landowners. So they may each have competing interests, but your promoter will look to get a, agreements in place for each of them so that it can bring forward a, a scheme that covers the, all of those different parcels of land. Alternatively, on the other end of the scale, you could have a development agreement or a development management agreement with the landowner. So that's where the landowner retains control of the site, uh, which may or may not have benefit of planning at this stage. And it essentially contracts the developer to carry out the works and procure the development. So typically there, the developer would uh, benefit by, by way of a profit share arrangement with the landowner. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to cut it. Those are just some of the types of agreements. Um, but every transaction is different and you can structure it in different ways. I think it's fair to say that at the moment um, we're seeing, um, I suppose, a majority of promotion agreements being put forward and agreed on the basis that uh, the landowner and the promoter have a joint interest in uh, trying to maximise the value of development land, which allows them to go to the market uh, to get as, as best value as, as possible and the market is tested. Um, so I think uh, if there's a theme, I'd say it's promotion agreements at the moment seem to be more, more prevalent. I think following on from that, the reason uh, for that is that if you're looking at a, a much larger site, generally house builders like to buy what one might call pre-packaged sites of anything from sort of two to 400 units that they can just buy off the shelf, a bit like going into the supermarket and buying your Sunday roast joint um, with all the vegetables with it. So they just know they've got everything there. They can go and build build their houses. If they sell well, they'll probably come back for, a, for, 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 for another phase of the site because you won't be able to sell a site in, 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 in one go. 
the good thing about a promotion agreement is each time you sell a phase, you go back to the marketplace and the initial bids can sometimes be increased by 15 to 20 percent of the figures first put on the table when the when the promoter puts the site out to to, to bid. The promotion agreements, the initial fees will vary widely according to the promoter's um, uh, size in the marketplace and also what they feel about the developability of the site. I recently had a case where the promoter was prepared to pay £2,000 per acre for some bare agricultural land that flooded and I had to point out to the clients who were getting um, uh, jumpy about this that that was the value of their land in about 2002, 2003 uh, as agricultural land in the marketplace and here was somebody prepared to pay them uh, what they would have been received if they'd sold that land at that time just for the right to be able to put in planning permissions on it for a period of years albeit the period of years could run for 25 years and another 15 years to sell the site on which takes you way past most most of our working lives. The other um, element which hasn't been mentioned yet which of course would influence may influence what type of agreement is chosen is the actual tax that the landowner is likely to have to pay if the landowner is likely to be uh, retaining uh, risk in the development uh, whether under a sort of development agreement with a developer then uh, there's likely to be a, a, a more beneficial tax regime open to, to the landowner than if they're just going to be selling the land under a conditional contract or an option agreement which will just be an outright sale so again uh, tax will come into it and and that is a sort of a separate topic for discussion in itself with um, capital gains tax corporation tax pooling arrangements uh, etc um, but uh, that, that's certainly something that will be at the forefront of, of people's minds thank you all so last question uh, what are the key components that you all think are needed for a successful strategic land development the first one's got to be location 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 um, without a doubt I think also it's having a local authority who's got some experience of dealing with a development of this scale. Otherwise, there's a fair amount of education going on with them as you work up the application. So I think that really helps. And obviously an expert team of advisors. Well, that goes without saying. And patience. Yeah, definitely. Bearing in mind the local plan process, how long that can take. It's, it is a long-term commitment. And often these schemes will have, even once you've got planning, the 20, 30 year build out cycle who don't want to flood the market and suppress values that way. So it really is a long term investment project. I think it's based on the cooperation and trust that has to be built between the landowners and the promoters, because landowners are necessarily nervous about what might be happening that might affect the saleability of their land. They're nervous about whether a promoter is, has actually just signed them up to sterilise their site while the promoter goes and develops a site on the opposite side of the city and all that kind of thing so there has to be careful monitoring and the monitoring is not just by say the valuer or surveyor acting for the landowners there's quite a lot of legal monitoring that goes in in into the process as well uh, not just waiting until there's a section 106 agreement to be vetted but looking at aspects of you know what the promoter should be saying most most landowners need uh, a dual interpretation of the surveyor and the solicitor back to them 
uh, to give the experience of past uh, performance on other deals so that they do have a clear understanding month by month, year by year as to what's going on. Legacy aspects need to be thought about as well. You have the long-term management of the public realm, green spaces and shared facilities to consider. And thought needs to be given to how that's going to be dealt with and funded going forwards, such as how the management charge and estate regulations will be structured in order to preserve the initial quality of the development. Yeah, I think that timing point is key. Quite often we have to go in and unpick what might have done or try and sort out whether it's the, the land deal or whether it's the planning elements or promises have been given on the delivery of certain elements of infrastructure that then can't be structured in that way on whether from an EIA perspective or purely from a financial viability point of view. So yes, I think having the right team and having them early on and consistency within that team throughout the process is, is key. Thank you. Thank you all so much for joining me today. If listeners would like to listen to any of our other podcasts, you can find them on our website, forsters.co.uk, or on all your usual podcast providers, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, and you can follow us on all the usual social media channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And until next time, goodbye. Forster's Northern Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The Northern Law podcast and all copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it should not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent. Thank you.